Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Mike, Chris, and Killian. And our icebreaker question was inspired by an article about obsessed self-quantifiers on their bikes. And it can be really any form of exercise and that all the monitoring and tracking of their data and their results It was making biking no fun anymore. And we live in a world where we believe that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And that's often the case in the business world. But what about our personal lives? Makes me wonder if we control the data or if the data controls us. And when we yield so much power to data to tell us where we might be falling short, time and time again, is that when self-quantifying becomes more work than fun? Uh, This is Chris Kaiser. I'm going to jump right on in here because as soon as I saw this, it reminded me of myself. So I've been on this path of trying to, you know, lose weight, be healthier, all that kind of stuff uh, as of, you know, the start of this this year. And I've had a Fitbit for a couple of years. And I remember when I got it, I was obsessed with trying to hit 10,000 steps to the point where I would check my numbers all the time. I would, you know, always be in the app and I would look at it. And there's nights where right before I went to bed, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm at 9,700 something. I would get up and try and walk in circles around my apartment to try and try and get the 10,000 steps. But even worse is when I started trying to do the whole calorie tracking thing, this is a case where the data actually really did kind of control me because every meal I ate, I tried to make sure that I could track it exactly in the app. And what that meant was for the 80% of places that don't have data in the app, you can't eat there. So I was walking, I remember walking around New York City being like, can I eat there? Can I eat there? Can I eat there? It literally, it shows for me what and where I could eat, which kind of messed with me a little bit. And I just gave up after a week. I'm I'm not doing this. I can't stand this anymore. So if you're trying to, you know, leverage that in your decisions, I think you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt, honestly. If you're like me, you're going to become that kind of obsessive. And then how are you with it now? I don't track calories whatsoever. And the Fitbit that I'm currently wearing is only for my um, silent alarm in the morning. So, yeah, I don't check the numbers at all anymore. This is Mike Thompson. I'm definitely wildly different from Chris. I I don't track anything, really. uh, The the app that's actually mentioned in this article, the Strava for bike tracking, I've used it. I've tracked a few of my rides. I was curious to see how long my uh, commute is when I bike into the office. And maybe I tracked like five rides total. And then I realized I, I... don't do anything with this data. Okay, I know how long I biked for. What does that mean to me? It doesn't really mean anything. So I quit using it. I don't count my steps. I, I really don't track any part of my life. That's just not the way my brain works. I just kind of uh, kind of go about my business. The one thing I do track is so passive, I don't even really think about it. In fact, I didn't think about it until Chris was talking, which is my, my music taste. So like anything I listen to on Spotify gets tracked by the website Last.fm. So I can see the top artists I've listened to all year. I can get recommendations about other music, but that doesn't take any manual effort from me. I mean, it just kind of happens silently in the background and takes care of itself. So it's so low input. I definitely don't feel like the data is controlling me in any way. It's just kind of an, a fringe benefit of already listening to a lot of music. So I can understand why people who are geared a certain way can really get obsessive about this type of stuff, but it's just not something that kind of resonates with me personally. Hi, this is Killian. I think I'll split the difference between the two of them in a number of ways. I actually find it 
fun to track some of the data, and it also helps me be accountable to myself. And by that, kind of along Chris's lines, I tend to be fairly sedentary in my daily life, you know, working behind a computer, and I'm a fat kid at heart. I love to eat. So on the occasion that I do work out, I like a very structured program. Um, a couple of years ago, I did Insanity and I did a T25, and those are very regimented, which which I found enjoyable, and I'd like to hold myself accountable with those by tracking my weight and different other metrics um, through the program. And I actually, it rewarded me to keep going. I think that's the easiest way to get discouraged is to not have any data backing up that you're making progress. And it can get to the point of being a little bit obsessive, you know, every week tracking your weight and things like that. But you really do start to see a difference after a while. Because if I don't, if I don't hold myself accountable in some way, then I'll just fall off the wagon, you know. Uh, you know, Reese's peanut butter cup here is not going to kill me. You know, maybe I'll go grab a burger. It's not going to kill me. And if I don't have that accountability to myself when I'm doing this, um, I think it's very easy to fall off. So I don't think the data controls me at least personally, but it helps me be accountable to myself if I set a goal. Imagine you literally falling off a wagon and then popping a Reese's in your mouth. That's my exercise routine. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy your show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our info set cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit verunas.com slash review. We started off the show wondering about monitoring and tracking our movements. And I want to talk about event logs where it does matter a whole lot, especially in forensics investigations. And I thought it was really, really interesting that there's a Python script that's able to recover deleted event log entries, and then you're able to retrace the attacker's movements. What is the significance of this? And if you're in IT responsible for forensics investigations, what would go through your mind if you're wondering whether or not your event logs are accurate? I found this pretty cool. Kind of what I got out of the article was the fact that it didn't exactly delete the event logs. It was kind of a novel approach to covering your tracks. It's fairly obvious if, you know, one day your event log is, I don't know, depending on how busy it is, a couple hundred meg, let's say, and the next day it's 50 meg. That's a pretty easy difference to spot. So what the attack or the uh, tool that covers the tracks did is just rewrite the pointers in there basically to hide or uh, invalidate the logs without changing the actual contents. So from the outside observer, everything looked like it was fine. There was no size change in the file. And I bet you, well, the hash would be different, but it would be much, much harder to detect. So I thought it was pretty cool that it's a neat way to retrick it. So going back and resetting the pointers would be a novel approach to getting this data back, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think the most interesting thing about this was kind of the the method of attack and, and on hiding that content within other events. I'm I'm hoping I'm never in a position where I think I've been hit by dander spritz and I have to uh, <laughs> recover log entries. I hope that's not ever something I run up against. But it's nice to know that someone recognized what was happening and was able to to create this script. But yeah, I, I do think the most interesting thing about this is really the the attack more than the recovery. This is a pretty pretty unique way of doing things. For for those who aren't familiar with with dander spritz, so it's a supposed NSI cyber weapon. The idea is that it goes in and it will kind of merge or unreference a lot of the event log entries. I would think of it as the event log equivalent of putting shaving cream across the uh, uh, the lens of a video camera, like a security camera, uh, so that you're missing all the stuff that's in between. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating article. I didn't know this was an attack at this point. Very cool seeing what uh, both how it actually works and, and, and second, how they ended up resolving the, uh, the issue. 
So almost all forms of technology today, including data security software, involves some form of machine learning, deep learning. Inevitably, it'll lead us to artificial intelligence. And right now, there's a lot of hype in AI, and it can potentially help us with space exploration and scientific advances. And the state of where we're at is that every AI advance you've heard of depends on a breakthrough that's three decades old. I didn't know that. And what this means is that we're able right now to do computations faster with enormous, enormous amount of data sets. And it's not completely accurate right now because there's an example in an article about how if you search for dumbbells, out comes some arm. And another interesting point is that in order to get a deep learning system to recognize a hot dog, you might have to feed it 40 million pictures of a hot dog. Whereas, you know, to get a two-year-old baby to recognize when you just show the baby a hot dog. And so in order for machine learning models to be to be accepted by society and computer scientists, we need to know why they're making the computers, why they why they're making the decisions they're making. There's really kind of two concerns, I guess. One is can we get it to can we get AI to replicate the way the human mind works? You know, can we can we get it to process the things we do? understand the context that we do. Um, but at the same time, so many existing implementations of AI are things that supersede human function. You know, you, you, you see these like kind of really publicized examples of like the, the, I think it's called Go. Is that the name of that game that uh, Google's built this computer to, to beat all the, the masters of this game that takes like a lifetime to master and it taught itself in, in four hours. And I, I, I think, you know, you bring up this question of can humans then understand why the computer is making that decision? And I understand the importance of being able to do that so that we can place our trust in these algorithms. But if, if, if it's our goal is truly to advance this computational power so far beyond what the human mind can do, it's going to get away from us. I don't, I don't see any way that uh, kind of our understanding of the, of the logic and decisions it makes can you can kind of track the progress that AI is making. Like if it's really going to be this exponential thing where we, you know, hit a certain threshold and things take off. I mean, I guess the fundamentals need to be understood, but I, at least to me from an outsider perspective, I don't follow this stuff too closely, but it just seems inevitable that AI will advance far past the point of humans being able to understand the logic. So I, I guess all I can say is I, I hope we can really master these kind of fundamental concepts that are the jumping off points for all this advancement, because at a certain point, we're just going to have to trust that what it's doing is, is correct. I see a couple different problems with this. I, I think at the fundamental level, the amount of data that we're dealing with here and they're, they're starting to train it on that and it has access to to work on is tremendous. And having a human sort through that is is not possible. So what we have to do is figure out the algorithm more than anything else. This is basically the old show your work problem that all of us remember from I don't know, high school, grade school math, where it doesn't matter what the answer is. I mean, the answer is 42, obviously, but how we got there is the more important question. So being able to reverse engineer that and learn why and how things are happening is important for us to understand better, to work through the problem on our own. And if we're not going back and putting that effort, I think it's a missed opportunity for us as people to advance, uh, to come up with new concepts. It's not about the ends. It's about the journey to get there that's more important. We often talk about the harm of data breaches and the risk in protecting our data and the algorithms that might or might not 
invade our privacy and to improve our recommendations. So it's pretty great that New York City created this bill that acknowledges the need for transparency when governments use algorithms and how to assess whether or not the results are biased and how uh, it might potentially negatively impact the results and how we can remedy that. And to juxtapose against the FTC panel that discussed when do harm and injury become more than trivial. And we talk about, or Mike Buckby uh, one of our panelists on this show, he's not here today, but he's always here to protest the question, well, what's the harm? Because I think his primary concern is that the more data there is, the better, because everything is interconnected and the more information you have, it makes the product better. And that developers, you know, he often feels that developers are not harming people intentionally and they're just doing their job, but there is a real potential harm there. And to sort of round out our icebreaker question, the FTC chairman said at the workshop, quote, in making policy determinations, injury matters. And if we want to manage privacy and data security injuries, we need to be able to measure them. I I think it's important that there are panels like this that are you know, pulling in people from different industries because everyone's using this technology differently. You know, someone's researcher might have some very pure idealistic goal of how they, you know, foresee their their advancements and their research being used. But that doesn't mean it's not ultimately going to be used to sell me a pair of headphones on Instagram or something. I, I do think it's important for people to to kind of talk about and explain what the the intersection between this technology and actual real life use cases is, because otherwise you're going to put all this, you know research and money and power into these uh, AI advances and and maybe without ever really considering the, the human cost. And I don't really know how, other than, you know, the workshops like this and kind of these discussion panels, I mean, I don't know how the average person can have any input at this, other than the fact that we are the true input of what these things are learning based off. I wouldn't go as far as to say that these things are like completely unknowable. I think they're not all that complicated. I mean, they are complicated um, and there's quite a bit of math that goes behind them. And, you know, somewhere my college professor who was big into this is probably shaking his head going, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But there is a twofold problem. One, we're dealing with such massive quantities. We're dealing with ideas that came from, I think, what the late 70s, early 80s, about 30 years ago. And computer technology is finally just caught up in terms of power to be able to process the massive data volumes we need to make any sense out of this. And I think that's the one problem. We're dealing with such a gigantic data set that it becomes more difficult to train this or figure out what it's picking up as we're training it and correct those errors. And I think the second part of it is also going back to the data itself. If you, We almost have a garbage in, garbage out situation. If we're feeding it the wrong type of data to train the algorithm, we're going to get maybe the wrong type of response or something that we don't expect to come out of it. And I think New York passing some regulations about how they're going to use the data they collect for law enforcement and other various things. So if they have uh, data that's going in that has maybe a, a bias they don't realize is there, it could affect how they're using the data on the output. So they might put more police officers in areas for a reason that they might not realize. Um, there might be more reported crime in a particular area because of some other unseen third factor, but they're training the algorithm based on that without understanding that third factor, so it could result in some mixed use. So I think they're advocating for more review over the algorithm itself uh, and more consideration on the type of data they're training it with 
um, to avoid these type of pitfalls. If we're looking at the FTC and what they're saying here, I feel like risk and harm are the are the opposite sides of the exact same coin. And I'm getting to that conclusion because risk is oftentimes in business very hard to quantify. Trying to figure out hard dollar values, that's what a lot of people base their decisions on. You know, what risk looks like? Is there fines? Is there something else as a result of it? And if you flip that around, the result of uh, an unmitigated risk is some potential harm to somebody, either to the business or to the consumers. So I think these are two kind of unknowables, not quite the right word, but they're derived values based on some calculations. And I don't think anybody really has a good handle on how to derive either one since they're so interrelated. Because if you look at a web server going down because you missed a patch, the risk potential there could be you know loss of revenue, for example, if you can't serve up the page for somebody to buy your uh, headphones on Instagram that they're selling to Mike. But if, on the other hand, the web server doesn't go down and it leaks out social security numbers for lots of people, what the risk profile is completely different, I think. Um, it's not a monetary one in terms of loss of sales. It could be a monetary one in what's it going to cost to settle a lawsuit. Again, we still don't have a great handle on that because the default answer is it's going to be some credit monitoring and that's fine without consideration to what the harm is. Credit monitoring doesn't help if your social security number is leaked and someone steals your identity. I don't know if there's a great answer here, but it can't be held to as hard of a rule because it's more ethereal than it is concrete anymore. I think the really interesting point that they they made and something that kind of hit me, even though I really try to consider what I'm sharing and who I'm sharing it with and to what degree. But they made the point in the article that businesses might value different things than the consumer. I mean, of course they do. So, you know, they're going to be collecting data that they think is valuable for them, that they feel gives them maybe a competitive edge in some way or makes the user experience better for you in some way that they deem worth the risk of collecting some sort of personal information or doing some advanced tracking. But the consumer doesn't necessarily sign off on that. They're not agreeing. They're like, yeah, I'll opt into this data collection if you make your um, you know, the, the, the login for when I go to pay my phone bill a little more user-friendly or something along those lines. I mean, I, I'm, there's no tacit agreement on the user's part that they're, they're willing to sacrifice that information for a certain you know, feature set. And then, you know, I've seen this happen before where, you know, companies release their privacy policies, so they rewrite something. And, you know, there's some really tricky legalese where they say, oh, you know, we won't sell this information um, unless the company gets bought out. And then they, you know, some other company can buy the, your, all the information we've collected about you and do as they please. Something that comes up a lot when talking about free services like Google, for example, is that, you know, there's, there's no customer support for Google if Gmail's not working. And there's a reason for that is because you're not Google's customer. You're the product. You know, they're selling your information. You know, people who are buying ads, they have a support login. They, they can contact Google for support. You as the end user cannot. Um, so I think that's something people forget about a lot is that, you know, big data is such a, a huge part of, you know, the business world now. There's an infinite amount of information out there. Um, and I think the only hope that we can have, you know, as average everyday users of technology is more transparency about what we're opting in, what what it's used for. And I, you know, it's hard to get that in plain English. Very rarely do I read a privacy policy or something where I understand exactly what's being done with my data. I think those are few and far between. You bring up a really great point and interesting kind of topic is that we're very much trapped in a Kafkaesque world now um, between the legalese of contract agreements and decisions being made by AI that we don't fully understand or our data being fed into an algorithm for something else. If we were of the paranoid disposition, uh, I can see, you know, this becoming 
tinfoil hat inducing. When people really stop to think about it and kind of delve into it, especially people who, who maybe do not have a technical background like some of us, um, just the kind of thought that opening up a new world that, you know, machines are making decisions about them. They don't understand what data is going in, how it's being collected, and what the output is being used for. So I think as, again, the show's not targeted for a regular audience, but I think it could be really eye-opening if they start to think about this. And if we can get people to think about it a little bit more, maybe they can demand some more transparency from the organizations that they do business with. So my thoughts on the matter of taking harm into account, um, this is something that I remember from years and years ago when I was doing grad courses on you know, software engineering, and part of it was ethics. And a lot of it was, you know, making sure that the when people design software, that they're doing so with that potential harm in mind. A lot of it was based around things like, you know, coding software for industrial machines, where if you cut corners and you make a mistake or something is coded incorrectly, a giant arm could go swing and hit somebody. Uh, and that's not the kind of things you expect to happen, but it's something you have to keep in mind as a potential harm that could come from an error or a mistake or malfunction of some kind. Now, I see that as being very similar to what we're seeing here with data, data protection, data breaches, software in general, where the harm may not be physical, it may not be as uh, blunt or obvious as a robotic arm to the face, but as we said before, the potential harm of someone's personal information being leaked or stolen or abused somehow, um, I see a lot of parallels there. I see it as you know part and parcel of the same discussion. So we don't have a tool this week, but are you guys doing anything fun for the holidays? Yeah, this is Chris. I, uh, I'm just going to go spend some time with my family, my wife's family, and then, you know, go to a New Year's Eve party on New Year's Eve. Nothing too crazy besides that. Yeah, I'm going to fly down to uh, the South Carolina to see my family for about a week or so and then enjoy the warm weather while I can and come back to freezing New York. All I really want to do around the holidays is sleep until noon and eat leftover pizza. But some holiday miracles just don't come true. <laughs> Who gets the fresh pizza the night before? Well, that's that's when the fun happens. I want to do the polar bear jump thing, but then I'm afraid I might get pneumonia. So maybe not. We'll see how I feel. Thanks to Mike Thompson, Killian Ingler, Chris Kaiser, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again soon. Thanks. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you. Bye.